0: Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, philosophical, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. Today, let's talk about convictions. Not any particular ones, but just personal convictions in general. Now everyone needs a set of convictions by which to live and what do you mean by convictions well they're not merely strong opinions let alone decisions or or mere preferences of the moment by conviction i mean fundamental belief that some things are true and will always be true and that some things are right and will always be right new information can and often should change our opinions A conviction, however, is formed over time. It's tested, and once it takes hold, it can't change without changing the person. Convictions are a part of one's character. In general, a spiritually healthy individual has some basic convictions that are stable and broadly applicable to the variable circumstances of life. Some convictions. Not a lot of them. See, a person without convictions, or whose convictions are defined by the ever-shifting sands of modern morality, is adrift in the world, and to borrow an expression from the Apostle Paul, tossed by every wind of doctrine. But too many convictions make a person rigid, inflexible, and fanatical. The quality of the conviction is also important. It's important that those convictions be pure and sound and founded in moral absolutes. A person with corrupt convictions is a menace to himself and to others, but a soul with morally sound convictions is a blessing to the world. But are there times when a person of conviction should compromise with a world that doesn't recognize his convictions, that doesn't have regard for his religious beliefs or agree with his moral standards? There are two stories from the later life of Abraham that give us a clear demonstration of how to discern when compromise is okay and when on the other hand conviction is not up for negotiation the first is Genesis 23 Abraham buys a burial plot the situation in this passage is that Abraham's beloved wife Sarah the mother of the son God had promised to him, has died. At this time, Abraham is living in the southern region of Canaan near the city of Arba, later and still today known as Hebron. Yahweh, God Most High, has promised that this land and the whole expanse of Canaan has been given to Abraham and his descendants. Yet to this day, he lives as a nomad, as a squatter on open land, He holds no earthly deed to any real estate at all in the land that God has promised him. Now, with the death of Sarah, Abraham has a new problem. He needs a place to bury her. And in her burial, he needs to honor her faithful life. And he also needs to give testimony to the promise of God and to his ultimate hope in posterity and even life after death. Now, up to this point, Abraham has never invested a penny in real estate. All his money has gone into stock. Livestock, that is. But now he goes to his neighbors, and he bids to purchase some land that would be a suitable tomb for Sarah, and eventually for himself and his heirs. He selects the cave of Machpelah, owned by one Ephron, the son of Zohar. The people of that region are called Hittites. Literally The hebrew says sons of heth who were these people well it's possible that these were a tribe of semitic amorites who lived in that area and happened to have a similar name to the hittites it's not out of the question however that the people abraham was dealing with were foreign colonists who were in control of that territory archaeological evidence is lacking but it's lacking for a lot of things in that time period But we do know that the Indo-Aryan Hittites, whose empire was based in Central Asia Minor, Turkey, were continual competitors with Egypt for political and commercial dominance of Canaan. In any case, from the long view of history, all those who occupied that area were only there for a short time. There was always someone new to come forward to claim ownership of the land. With this in mind, Abraham insisted on purchasing free and clear title to a place that would be a family burial plot. Abraham was much respected by his neighbors, and the owner of the land offered simply to donate the land. But Abraham declined. He wanted to pay the full price that they might demand so that no one could come back later and say that Abraham had cheated them or that they were his benefactors. And no sooner does Abraham decline the gift than the owner comes up immediately with an offer. The negotiations are illuminating as to the business customs of the time, but we're not going to go into it too much. Abraham bought it for 400 shekels of silver. That's approximately 2,000 troy ounces. Now, who knows what a shekel of silver, the dollar of that day, could buy. Um, But unquestionably, this was a pretty good piece of change. So here's the question, though. In view of the promise of God, is this not a compromise of faith and principle? After all, God has given Abraham all this land. He's given it to him. Why doesn't Abraham simply go in and claim it? Well, the short answer, provided by theological hindsight, is that it was not the time for him to take possession of the land. Conquest and possession was not Abraham's God-given mission. When God made his covenant with Abraham, he specifically told him that his descendants, 400 years away, would return to lay claim. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, said the Lord. All of this is in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 21. Now, how much of that did Abraham understand? Well, we can't know for sure. But his actions show that he thought of himself as a hopeful sojourner, not an owner. Though he fought when he had to in defense of his kin, Abraham was a man of peace, and his mission was of peace. So when Abraham bought a burial plot, it looked on the surface like a compromise, an admission that what God had given him did not truly belong to him and that his faith was only a dream and perhaps even a fraud. In fact, however, Abraham was practicing his faith. As much for his descendants' sake as for his own, he accepts the temporary dominance of the world over his possession and buys from the pagans the recognition that he rightfully owns at least a piece of it. In later years, his son Isaac, also a peace-loving man, followed his father's example, negotiating the rights to water wells that his father had dug. There's a pseudo-spirituality that can take one of two directions. It may be hyperactive, naming and claiming by faith everything in the world that the believer wants or thinks he needs. Under this theory, Abraham should have boldly announced to the locals his rightful title to the land and demanded it not as a gift, but as a right. Uh, How do you suppose that would work out? Or it may instead be totally passive, expecting that the whole world will be laid in his lap with no effort whatsoever on his part, because God will do it for him. In this case, should Abraham have waited and let God put it on their hearts to just give him the title to the land and free, free and clear with, with no strings attached? Well, what are you going to do with Sarah's remains while waiting on the Hittites to get the message? Both of those approaches pretend to be super-spiritual, but in fact, they're pseudo-spiritual but the true child of god lives by faith a kind of life in the present day that will not be revealed until the age to come now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen hebrews 11:1 the only way the world will see this life is to see us live it it's a life of hope of certainty for things that are not yet seen but one day will be revealed in the meanwhile We do live in the world, and we have to deal with the world. It's not a compromise of principle to provide for your family by ethical and honest means. Jesus gave a clear word on this when, in Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27, Peter comes to him to ask him about paying the half-shekel tax to the temple. Peter had been hassled by some of the the, uh, antagonists of Jesus, who said, doesn't your master pay the temple tax? Well, Peter came to ask Jesus about it, but before Peter could open his mouth, Jesus began to teach him. Now, understand something. This half-shekel tax was not one of those traditions of men that Jesus condemned, nor was it an imposition by a distant imperial government, Caesar. It was commanded in the law of Moses. Twice, Exodus 30, 13 and 38, 26. Jesus, using a parable, explained to Peter that he, as God's son, personally was exempt from the tax, but he would pay it in order not to be a stumbling block to them. Now, projecting the, this principle back to Abraham, assuming he really did have the right to claim that burial cave according to the promise of a god the local Hittites did not believe in, he was still right not to exercise the claim for the sake of not creating a stumbling block to them. So we see that Abraham, by purchasing a burial plot in a land which God had already bestowed on him through a promise, seemed to be making a concession in opposition to his faith. But in reality, it wasn't a capitulation at all. It was actually a confirmation of his hope in the promise of God, along with a realistic acknowledgment that others did still yeah, hold legal title. And the land was his in which to dwell, but not yet to possess. He was waiting on God. Even so today, God's children, chosen in Christ Jesus, must live in a world that does not recognize their eternal privilege or their authority as servants of the king of kings. Yet they are instructed to submit to lawful authority and to live peaceable and quiet lives in testimony of their faith. There does come a time, however, when situational compromise is impossible without compromising faith and conscience. Sometimes we simply must make a stand and trust God for the results. Genesis 24, Abraham seeks a bride for Isaac. So we turn the page in the Bible and see the next story, in which once again, Abraham, aging Abraham, had a problem. His son Isaac was 40 years old and still a bachelor. Not good if this is the seed through whom a great nation would spring. Some have blamed that on Isaac being a mama's boy, and to some extent that may have been true. Still, the bigger problem was that the pool of suitable young ladies in South Canaan was extremely small, even non-existent unless Isaac married a Canaanite, and that wasn't going to happen under Abraham's watch. Abraham could do nothing about Isaac's introverted personality. What he could do is take the search for a bride to another region, but he couldn't do it himself, for age was finally catching up even on Abraham. Neither did he dare send Isaac away to do it for himself, lest his son be enticed, or even worse, trapped, to stay in the land that God had called him to leave behind. So he called on the aid of a trusted steward. Now I'm not going to launch into a defense or even an explanation of marriage customs in the Levant in the second, second millennium .BC. That, that would be a, a pointless digression. Let's just you know just get down to what's going on here in this narrative. His instructions were clear. The objective was well-defined. But Abraham went a step further. He put his servant under oath. You will not take a wife for my son Isaac from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. At this point, the servant sees a potential drawback. What if he goes, finds a suitable woman, but she refuses to come with him? He's under oath, so it's literally do or die. But if the other parties fail to comply with his restrictions, where does that leave him? It's a valid point. The servant wants to know what part of this transaction is negotiable and what is not. Where does the servant's liability end? What if they instead invite Abraham's son to come up and claim her himself? Would, would, would that be acceptable? The old patriarch would have none of it. Only you must not take my son back there. Abraham acknowledges that the servant has a valid concern. He's asking a lot for the man. He's asking far more from the yet-as-yet unknown young woman. God is faithful, but people are not. So Abraham explains the conditions. So Abraham explains the conditions and grants an escape clause. If she will not come... The servant is released from his oath. Uh, The whole story that follows, how the servant went back to the land of Haran in northern Mesopotamia, faithfully obeyed Abraham's instructions, and brought back Rebekah to wed Isaac. It's a wonderful, charming story. It's worth retelling. I'm not going to do that here. Read it yourself in Genesis 24. Please do that. I wish simply to draw attention to the conviction in Abraham's words and his instructions to the servant. It's important to understand that God had given Abraham no commandment or instruction on this matter. If he had, it it surely would have been recorded in the scripture. The conditions Abraham laid down were determined by the word God had given him before Isaac was conceived And by Abraham's confirmed conviction that the promise of God is true. That's how convictions work. Convictions guide the choices that we make. And they guide the way we think about problem solving. So, in this particular problem, here are are the issues that are brought forth from Abraham's convictions. One, if the promise of God is true then Isaac must not marry a Canaanite. The line of promise must be be kept pure from that. Two, if the promise of God is true, then Abraham's son must not leave the land of promise to go back to the old home. That land will never be home again. Three, if the promise of God is true, then God who made the promise will. Indeed, he must provide a suitable bride. Notice Abraham's full assurance. The Lord will send his angel ahead of you and prepare everything and set it up. God's going to set this up. He is confident of that. But four, if the people involved will not cooperate, God's plan notwithstanding, there will still be no compromise here. Conviction cannot be reduced to a preference just because others will not see the point. Well, what if the servant comes back empty-handed? Abraham pre-releases the servant from his oath. Here's the question. Does that betray a doubt in the mind of Abraham? A hint that he knows this whole proposition is a throw of the dice? Not at all. God made the promise, and God established the conditions. Therefore, God would provide. This Abraham learned on one fateful day at Mount Moriah back in Genesis 22. And as it was then, so it would be now. Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord provides. Man must be practical and operate on probabilities, that's true. But God is God, and with Him all things are possible. Read the whole story, please. It's wonderful. From a natural and human point of view, it's a chain of improbable but happy coincidences. From Abraham's point of view, the viewpoint of faith is the working out of the plan. What shall we say then? How did Abraham, and how do we, know the difference between righteous and unrighteous compromise? Well, let's put it another way. What is the difference between the vice of obstinacy just being stubborn and the virtue of conviction. Righteous compromise does not waver on truth and it's an act of faith in its own right. It's not good to try to force God's will on others and neither is it good to passively plead for God's help in an emergency when he's already provided the means for deliverance. To refuse to budge because things aren't happening according to our desire or expectation is just being obstinate. There does come a time in every believer's life, however, when he has to stand on his conviction of what is true and right and let the results rest in the hand of God. Most things are negotiable in this world, but not morals and not faith. God is sovereign. Jesus Christ is Lord. And either we believe it or we do not. When we do not believe God is going to come through for us, we make other arrangements and try to hedge our bets. Like the guy in the Catholic hospital who was visited by the chaplain as he lay dying. Administering the last rites, the priest adjured him, Do you renounce Satan? And the dying man replied, Hey man, this is no time to be making enemies but I digress this has been Insight with Gary Nation thanks for listening